I want the gravity of what has just been read sink in for a moment. Oftentimes we can lose sight of the significance of what we hear because we're so familiar with it. But let's not do that today. Today we enter the Holy Week and as the words of the liturgy for Palm Sunday puts it, we will follow Jesus this week from the glory of the palms to the glory of the resurrection by way of the dark road of suffering and death. And just how dark is this road? If I was to just pull out all the verbs from the passage just read, the verbs that tell us what was done to Jesus in the last 48 hours of his life, if I were to do that, they would read as follows. Jesus was betrayed by Judas, seized by the crowd, left by the disciples, accused by false witnesses, unfairly judged by the high priest, spit, struck, and slapped in his face, denied by Peter, bound and delivered to Pilate, demanded to be crucified by the crowd, scourged, stripped, mocked, and crucified by the soldiers, derided by the passerby, reviled by the robbers who were crucified alongside with him, forsaken by God the Father. That's quite a list. That's not a pretty picture. There are many ways that we can rightly think about these events. But one of the most helpful commentaries on this account in Matthew probably comes from Paul's letter to the church in Philippi. If you have a Bible, could you turn with me to Philippians chapter 2? Philippians chapter 2. It'll help you follow along the sermon this morning. In fact, the 127 verses from the Gospel of Matthew that was just read for us can be summarized in the three verses from Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 8. Let me read that for you, starting with verse 6. Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. These three verses form the first half of the six verses from verse 6 to 11, which theologians have called the hymn of Christ. It is considered hymn because in the original language in Greek, these verses have a certain rhythm to them, and they can be nicely arranged in, in six stanzas of three lines each. And together, the six verses tell us about Jesus Christ in his pre-existent state, his incarnation, his death, and exaltation. And for our sermon this morning, I want to do three things. Well, firstly, I want to explain what this hymn is all about. And then I want to ask what it meant for the Philippian church. And finally, I want to touch on what it means for our church today. Well, firstly, what is this hymn all about? Well, right off the bat, Paul wants to establish the divinity of Jesus in this hymn. And he does that in two ways. Firstly, he speaks of Jesus as being in the form of God. And what's important to recognize here is that the Greek word for the word form here is morphe, morphe, which does not mean the external or outward shape. 
I know that's how we may define it in English, but remember, this is Greek. In fact, think of the philosopher Plato forms, for instance, right? In Platonic thought, forms are the very substance of ultimate realities, such as beauty, truth, justice, goodness, and so on. The Greek word morphe then refers to the very essence or the very nature of a thing, not its outer shape or appearance. And so Paul, by speaking of Jesus as being in a form, as being in the morphe of God, is saying that Jesus is in essence God. And that's why the NIV version uh, uh, translates this sentence as Jesus being in very nature God. Well, secondly, to reinforce his point about Jesus' divinity, Paul, in the next part of the same verse, tells us that Jesus possessed equality with God. Jesus equals God. You don't need to be a mathematician to infer from that the divine nature of Jesus. Jesus is divine. Jesus is God. And that's why we read a few months ago, if you remember, when we started from the, book of, the series on the book of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that Christ is the exact imprint of the nature of God. Now, once he has established Jesus' divinity, Paul then tells us that though he was divine, Jesus did not consider this very fact of his divinity, this very reality, as something to be grasped. Now, what this means is that Jesus did not regard his status and his rights as God as something to be used for his own advantage. Jesus did not cling on to his privileged status and rights that his full equality with God meant that he had. And just what did this look like? What does it mean not to cling on to these things? Well, verses 7 and 8 tell us, He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Well, a few comments on these two verses. Well, firstly, we should know by now, the word, the form of a servant in verse 7 doesn't mean the outward appearance. It's not as if Jesus started looking like a servant. No, as we explained earlier on, the, form, the word form here in verse 7 is the same Greek word morphe, which means the very essence, the very nature of being a servant, not the outer shape or appearance. It means that as a human, Jesus' essence, his nature was that of a servant. Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. But in his appearance, in his outward appearance, Jesus had the likeness of man. We see that at the end of verse 7. Well, we see that also at the start of verse 8, which said, And being found in human form. That's a little bit unfortunate and not very helpful, the way the ESV Bible translates that. You see, the word form here in chapter eight, uh, verse 8 in Greek is not morphe, but rather the word schema. It's a different word, which means more of you know, a fashion or an appearance. So again, the NIV translation is better here. It reads, and being found in appearance as a man. So Jesus, for all intents and purposes, was fully human. Well, secondly, with a servant nature, we are told Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Or actually, I think a better translation for the word servant in verse 7, which is the Greek word doulos, I think a better translation is the word slave. The slave is the lowest legal rank in the Roman world. And Paul is trying in this hymn to demonstrate the lengths that Jesus would go in obedience to his Father's will. There's no status higher than being God, and there's no status lower than being a slave. And so I think the word slave is a better translation. Well, actually, that's not quite right, because there is something worse than being a slave. It's being a crucified slave. And that's why in verse 8, Paul is more concerned about highlighting the social stigma of crucifixion, the degrading of the status of the person crucified. And that's why he added even death on a cross. The Greek statesman and philosopher Cicero said, and let me quote, he said, let the very name of the cross be far away, not only from the body of a Roman citizen, but even from his thoughts, his eyes, his ears, end quote. That's how shamefully degrading crucifixion was in those days. And that's why the idea of a crucified God is an oxymoron. For the Greeks, it was foolishness. Can you see what Paul's doing here? He's making a point to his hearers that the widest status gap imaginable, that which is between the status of God and the status of a slave was crucified. That's how big a drop in status it was for Jesus when he became human. And that's why when we read the verse, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. It is Jesus' obedience that Paul has foremost in his mind here. It's the extent of the obedience that Jesus had for the will of the Father. Thirdly, how is it possible that one can be fully divine and fully human? How can the divine nature and the human nature in Jesus coexist in one person? For instance, how, how could Jesus be simultaneously omnipotent and yet have a limited and finite human power? Well, the answer to this, in part, is explained by the phrase in verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. What does this mean? Well, for starters, it does not mean that Jesus somehow emptied himself of his divinity or emptied something from himself and somehow he becomes less than God. But rather he emptied himself, he poured out himself, the whole of himself, so that Jesus then remains fully God. He loses nothing of his divine nature, and no divine qualities are removed from him as he pours himself out to take the form of a servant. He pours out by taking, he empties by adding. There is subtraction by addition. Now, how is this possible? Let me illustrate. Just assume that I've gone downtown, I want to buy a car, I go down to this Porsche showroom and, and take a brand new, bright and shining yellow Porsche 911 Turbo S out for a test drive. It's one of those cars that's so shiny that you could go blind just staring at the sunlight reflecting from the car. Well, I take it out for a test drive and I drive it out in the country. I tried it on some unpaved um, dirt roads. Suspension, pretty good. But because it had rained earlier, the roads were pretty muddy, but it didn't stop me. And after many miles, I drove back to the showroom with mud 
all over the car. And a salesperson cries out, what have you done to this car? And I replied, well, I haven't taken anything from the car. I've only added to it. And of course, that's true. The beautiful shine of the car is still there. But the mud I've added to the car prevents these qualities from being able to shine through. The glory of the car is every bit as much present as it was previously. But this glory cannot be seen for what it is because of the mud. And that's how Jesus could, on the one hand, retain full deity while taking on humanity. He fully possessed his deity but could not fully express it because he has taken on human nature. He emptied himself by taking on. And because Jesus was obedient to that extent, we are told in verses 9 to 11, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every time confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our Christian faith is full of paradoxes, isn't it? To really live, we must die. To save our lives, we must lose it. To be wise, we must become fools. To be first, we must be last. Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 23, verse 11, The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And this is precisely what happened. Because Jesus humbled himself, he was exalted. He was given a name that was above all other names. And he was given such a name so that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. The very thing that God said in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 23 about himself. Isaiah 45, verse 23, let me read it for you. And God said, By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. You see what Paul's doing here? He's taking what's said in the Old Testament that's true only of Yahweh and applies it to Jesus, thereby making the point that Jesus is divine. And what's more, no sphere in this universe is exempted. Whether it's the angels in heaven or the humans on earth or the demons under the earth, Every single one will worship Jesus on bended knees and confess he is Lord with their lips. The only difference is whether they do it willingly and joyfully or in defeat with gnashing teeth. And all this will ultimately be for the glory of God the Father. So why this hymn of Christ here in Paul's letter to the Philippian church? What did it mean for them? Well, the Philippian church appears by all accounts to be a thriving church. But from Paul's letter, we can see he had some pastoral concerns. One of them was the external opposition that the church was experiencing. We see this in Philippians chapter 1, verse 28, where Paul urges the Philippian church not to be frightened in anything by their opponents. Paul himself, when he first visited Philippi, the city of Philippi, met with opposition as well. You can see that in, the, uh, in Acts chapter 16, verse 16. But there were also hints of internal disagreement as well. In chapter 4, verse 2, Paul writes, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. 
Yes, I ask you also, true companions, to help these women who have labored side by side with me and the gospel together. And so in the face of these external and internal challenges, Paul urges the church in chapter 1, verse 27 of Philippians, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, how would that be best exemplified? How does a manner of life that's worthy of the gospel of Christ look like? Well, for Paul, it was the unity of the church. Unity against external opposition, unity against internal strife. And hence, he continued in chapter 1, verse 27, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And in fact, chapter 2 starts off in verses 1 and 2 this way. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. And so unity that has been of one mind, one spirit, been in full accord, Unity is a big deal for Paul. That's his message for the Philippians in this chapter. Well, if you recall, that's unity was exactly what Jesus prayed for his disciples as well in his high priestly prayer just before his arrest. Jesus prayed to the Father in John chapter 17, verse 11. And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. The obvious question follows. How then can such unity be achieved in a church? And Paul's answer? Well, look at verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or in the NIV translation, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And what might this mindset be? Well, we just covered earlier. It's a mindset of humility, a mindset of obedience to the will of God. How will we then translate that mindset into action? Well, Paul gives us the answer in verses two, uh, 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count your others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you Look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. You see, that's the way of unity. A proper view of self and a proper view of others. Verses 3 and 4 don't need an extensive analysis. They're quite clear in themselves. Here, Paul is urging a spirit of unity, much like what Jesus had in verse 8. Through the hymn of Christ, he wants the Philippian church to reflect on what Jesus chose to do with his status. How in obedience to God's will, he humbled himself. Paul wants the Philippian church to do likewise. Well, it must be said that this was very countercultural during those times. Because humility was not a prized value. The Greeks did not even have a word for humility because it was considered to be of such a low value. 
The concept was foreign to them, and it was utterly ridiculous for the Romans. In fact, the word for humility was said to be coined only when the church started. But Paul here wants the Philippian church to be humble, and in humility consider others more important. There should not even be a hint of selfish ambition or conceit. And Christians must have the same concern that they have for themselves and apply it to others, just like Jesus. And so Jesus is to be the supreme standard of behavior for the Philippian church. Imitating Jesus' example will help preserve the unity of the church. You can see that, can't you? If everyone in church, in the way that they treat one another, if they're able to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, if they're able to consider others more important than themselves, if they're able to look not only to their own interests, but also to the interests of others. Now, if the Philippine church was able to do all this, there will be unity and the church will be a very different place. But in addition to imitating Jesus' behavior, Paul wants the Philippine church to remember the cross and what it stands for as well. Well, last year I spent a few weeks watching the NBA basketball playoffs. I don't usually watch basketball, but the Raptors were winning, unusually. And I'm sure many of you will remember their seventh game in the Eastern Conference playoff against Philadelphia, the one where Kawhi Leonard through the game winner just before the buzzer went off. Remember how the ball hit the rim of the basket four times before it dropped into the basket? Well, I don't know how many times I've replayed the clip of that shot. Why? I want to be able to shoot like that. I want to imitate Kawhi Leonard. But you know what? In this instance, wanting to imitate him is a totally different ball game from wanting to love and obey him. You see, but that's not the case with Jesus. There's much I need to imitate him. But the difference is that Jesus is more than just a role model. He loves me and shows his love for me by dying on the cross to redeem me from my guilt and sin. And you can't find a better symbol of Jesus' love for his people than the cross. At the cross, Jesus paid the price. And it was a terrible price for me, for you. And if I truly believe that, how can I stand at the foot of the cross and remember all that it represents and then pursue selfish ambitions or think more highly of myself than I ought or look only to my own interests? I can't do that. And so the hymn of Christ is not just meant to serve as a model for the Philippine church to follow, but it's also meant to change the very hearts of the Philippine church as well. Well, finally, what does the hymn of Christ mean for our church today, for each one of us here? I hope we can take away from the passage this morning a renewed sense of urgency for unity in our church. That all of us will be of one mind, one spirit, being in full accord. I think we're doing well on this front. Our last AGM, for instance, in February, every single resolution was passed with unanimous approval but we can't afford to be complacent. We need to continue to work at unity as a church. And as we have learned, what we need is humility, the kind that Jesus modeled for us, the kind that helps us not to do anything from selfish ambition or conceit, but count others more significant than ourselves, the kind that helps us to look not only to our own interests, 
but also to the interests of others at Christ the King. And this morning, I stand before you as one who recognizes how difficult this can be. I'm preaching this because I need to hear it myself. I hope that God is working some humility in me, but I do not stand before you today as an authority on humility. No, I'm a proud man striving for humility by the grace of God. There's still a great deal of pride in my heart. I know that because each time my wife, Karina, points out one of my faults, and mind you, she often does it very graciously, but each time she points out one of my faults, I, I say to her, honey, thank you so much for caring for me and loving me enough to correct me. I really appreciate it because it's going to help change my heart and make me more like Jesus. So please don't stop doing that. Please don't stop correcting me. Nah, that's not what I say. Not one bit. Even as she's starting to tell me where I might have gone wrong, my mind's already in overdrive mode, trying to come up with justifications for why I did what I did or why I said what I said. And if I think fast enough, I might even be able to turn it around and to show her that she's the one who needs changing. And so I need very much to imitate Jesus' example. And I need to remember the cross, to stand at the foot of the cross daily to remind myself of Jesus' love for me, to preach the gospel to myself, to change my own heart. And as I write these words, the government of Ontario has just released their projections of the likely scenario of the number of people who will be infected by the coronavirus and the number of people who will die as a result. And the numbers are pretty grim. I'm sure for many of us, the coronavirus is something that has dominated our minds over the last few weeks, if not months. Can I suggest an alternative, at least for this week? Can I suggest perhaps a passage such as the hymn of Christ in Philippians chapter 2 might just be what we need to dominate our minds during such times. As Paul says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And as we enter into the Holy Week, and as we draw near to Good Friday, let us imitate Christ in his humility, and let us look to the cross and let our hearts and minds be filled with gratitude for what Christ has done for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.